I served in Vietnam. I was waiting for him back home. When I left the military, I never even went to VA. But now he's 63 and he's got a few health issues. Maybe it's time to see what VA can do for us. I'm ready to give it a go. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. Hello, everyone. I'm Timothy Lawson, your host for This Week at VA. Many of you had encouraging and compassionate responses to Gordon Wallace's interview last week, and I thank you for that, and for reminding our veterans that their stories and emotions are cared for. This week, we're going to talk about the National Cemetery Administration. The NCA is sort of the third arm of the VA, health and benefits being the other two. NCA has a very specific and important mission. NCA honors veterans and their families with resting places in national shrines and with lasting tributes that commemorate their service and sacrifice to our nation. NCA strives to be the model of excellence for burial and memorials for our nation's veterans and their families. Interim Undersecretary for Memorial Affairs Ronald Walters leads his administration to success through principles of customer service. This week, the American Customer Service Index announced that NCA received a 96 score out of 100 for customer service satisfaction. This is the third time NCA has received marks like these. If you're unfamiliar with NCA and would like to learn about the services they provide, visit sem.va.gov. That's cem.va.gov. Today's feature interview is with Jim Horton. Jim was a pilot in the Air Force and is now the director of the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu. Jim is going to talk to us about his service, his transition, and the privilege he has to serve veterans and their families as a cemetery director. Enjoy. Uh, Jim Horton, the director of, what the, I, I know it's affectionately called the Punch Bowl, right? Um, but it's, um, it's the national, you, you know it better than yep. I do, the, the, orig, the official title of the place. National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific. That's right. Yep. Um, and you've been here for? Almost coming up on three years. I got here in middle of March of 2014. So, okay. Yeah. And you are a veteran. I am. I did uh, almost 28 years active duty in the Air Force. Uh, was flying fighters for a lot of that time and yeah. had, a, had a great time. Didn't plan it that way. <laughs> well, let's go back to the part that you did sort of plan, and that's joining <laughs> the Air Force. Sure. Um, what inspired that decision? Uh, Self-interest. Back then, I, I literally I had a love of flying, uh, all things related to aviation. I spent uh, a lot of my youth uh, flying radio-controlled airplanes and doing competitions. And I didn't actually physically fly very much uh, before I went to, before I got accepted to the Air Force Academy. And uh, the sort of funny part was before I got accepted there, I was headed to, uh, of all places, which those folks who know me go, no way. I had been accepted to MIT and was uh, going there with a best friend from high school uh, in Michigan where I grew up. And uh, But when I got the acceptance to the Air Force Academy, I go, nope, I'm going there. Interesting. Uh, so yeah, so I had uh, and, and absolutely no plans of doing anything other than being very selfish. Going to the Air Force Academy, uh, becoming a pilot, and at that time I, want, I thought I wanted to be a uh, cargo transport pilot, 
because I was a confirmed bachelor and I was going to live the life of Riley and uh, I was going to do my five or six years after pilot training and get out and go fly for the airlines. And I woke up 27 and a half years later and went, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, what So what, what are the years then? What, what were your years of service? So I, the academy, I was there from 79 to 83. And then I uh, came on active duty in June of 83. And I, uh, my actual retirement date was uh, February of 2011. So okay. almost six years since I retired, which is hard to believe by itself. But Yeah, um, I don't want to make you feel too old, but... 2011 is also when I got into the military, uh, and I only served for five years. So, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, so what? So enlistment to or reenlistment to reenlistment. What, yeah. what was the inspiring factor? Um, a couple of things. I mean, uh, I started out actually when I finished pilot training. Uh, some people scratch their heads and can't believe this, but they they take uh, guys who just finished pilot training and they turn them into instructor pilots which is kind of sketchy, you know, a lot of people's mind, they go, really, you know, you're, you've got, you know, a few hundred hours ahead of this other guy you're walking out to an airplane with, uh, and you're supposed to be teaching this guy how to, or gal how to fly. And, and so it's, uh, it's, you very quickly uh, are very proud of what you're doing. Um, and I was very fortunate. I was in, in the time when uh, there was a lot of military building back up. There was a lot of national pride. Uh, but I still, and I realized uh, doing a lot of cross-country flying with training new pilots that the whole straight and level going from point A to point B was just boring as hell. And at that point in time, I still wasn't uh, of the mindset that I was going to stay for long term, but I had changed my thinking to thinking, I think I want to fly something that goes fast and that I can go upside down and every which way and, and do something productive like blowing things up. Um, so. That's where my mind started going more towards flying fighters and getting motivated to do that. And I was very fortunate when I finished three years of uh, being an instructor in a T-38. Uh, I actually was, again, fortunate to get into uh, flying F-4s. But it was kind of the red-headed stepchild F-4s. It was a reconnaissance F-4s. So you went really fat, fast, but the only thing you could do was say smile and click the camera. Um, there were no bombs, there's no weapons on the airplane. So we were the uh, alone, unarmed, and unafraid crew. And, uh, but if you can imagine, I mean, this is a Vietnam era airplane, uh, early 60s, most of them made up through 70. But this thing had no problem going supersonic 500 feet off the ground. And I flew South Carolina, uh, into Germany and then over to uh, uh, George Air Force Base in California flying F-4s. And the last base where I was flying those was uh, transitioning into the, uh, the armed version of the F-4s uh, until all of a sudden they decided they were going to retire all of them. But uh, unbelievable. I mean, I was over in Europe during the uh, fall of the, the wall and just kind of in the heyday. It was awesome. And uh, and you can't help but start to feel like you're part of something much, much bigger than, than your own selfish intent or desire. And uh, it was somewhere in there that that I thought I was, you know, starting to see a little bit more of a bigger picture. But yet when I got to George Air Force Base and we were halfway through the F-4 transition to become a wild weasel pilot, uh, that they decided to shut it down and send it off to the guard. And now all of a sudden I'm in limbo again. You know, I'm a man without an airplane. I have no, you know, have no future. And I literally, 
uh, had reservations. I was going to Dallas to go do my uh, type rating in the 737, and I was headed out the door. That's this was at the uh, this was in the summer of '91, uh, right after Desert Storm, and uh, I was literally what would that have been a nine-year point. I was done. My commitments were up, and I was headed out the door. Uh, and I was going to go fly for Southwest, and done. And uh, those dirty SOBs down at uh, the personnel center dangled an F-16 in front of me and said, hey, you want to go fly this? <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and, and so there was no planning. And I kind of went, well, yeah, I could do that for a little while. And uh, that little while turned into from 91 up through just before retirement, I was F-16 pilot for all that time. And uh, I, as a fighter pilot, to be able to spend that many years flying uh, and most of it away from staff jobs, I, I wound up with a little bit over 4,000 hours of flying time, and uh, which again for fighters is a lot. Um, so I don't know where that point in time, you know, other than the fact you kind of get over the hump of, geez, you know, I'm, I'm more than halfway towards 20 years, you know, why not stick it out for a few years? Uh, but that that patriotism, that natural desire to to teach the next generation to be part of this and, and just the group of people, that bonding and that camaraderie, you can't, you can't get away from that. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, did you fly any missions in support of OIF and OEF? Uh, I did. Um, over the course of, so as you heard there from the tran transition, um, I wasn't actually in Desert Storm, did a lot of help uh, outside of it. Uh, but once it was over, most uh, most folks in the country don't even realize that the Air Force never left. When Desert Storm finished in 91, both in Turkey and down south in Saudi Arabia and, and surrounding countries, the Air Force stayed there. Hmm. The Air Force stayed from de the beginning of Desert Shield in 1990 all the way through OEF and OIF. The, the Air Force never left. Everybody else, most everybody else packed up and left. We were flying uh, no-fly zone missions, which are, sound very uh, benign, uh, but we were part of, I was part of the unit uh, w that shot down the MiG uh, in 1992. Um, there was a lot of activity that went on. We were constantly, in the early days after Desert Storm, we were over there typically for four to six months at a time. We'd come home for nine to 12 months and go right back again. So I was kind of on a rinse, lather, repeat cycle for a long time. And it, like I said, it was not benign. We had, uh, we had Iraqi uh, MiGs coming up after us on a regular basis. Uh, we were getting shot at, even though they were supposed to be good little boys and girls, they weren't. So it was a regular recurring thing to, to go in and be dropping bombs, to be watching out for or patrolling uh, with the Iraqi uh, fighters up there. So, wow. so it, it was, and like I said, it was, it was a very busy time. The Air Force was really concerned about the, the pace of operations and the wearing people out because folks were going back all the time. I mean, literally, you know, Cobar Towers and the bombing of Cobar Towers, our unit had left um, about a month prior to that. We had just rotated out and literally the tower next to the one that got hit directly was where we were staying. And we stayed every time. I mean, you didn't even have to worry about it. It was like going back to your favorite resort. 
you knew, you know, we knew we were going to Tower 7 when we went back, when our unit went back. We knew we were going to stay there. And we knew we'd have the 4th through the 7th floors, you know, so. Yeah. It's all fun. So being a, um, being a former fighter pilot, do you still listen to Danger Zone to, to reminisce about the old days? <laughs> There's a there's a mixed mixed uh, feeling on that stuff, and, and I guess the best way to describe that to you was when I retired, um, I was actually in San Antonio at Randolph Air Force Base, and I, and not planned at all. I wound up uh, kind of doing a favor for a friend, but also you know taking care of paying bills uh, when I first retired, and took a job as a civilian there at Randolph Air Force Base, and to be out of uniform but still around that flight line activity uh it definitely if it doesn't tug at your heartstrings then something's probably wrong you know maybe maybe there's either a dark spot or the heart stopped beating i don't know which but for me it was tough it was uh it's very challenging to have been so deeply embedded uh and physically and emotionally involved in that to just sever that tie immediately and think that you're not going to miss it. And so, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's that little, you know, weeping, weeping a tear, you know, every once in a while going, shit, I don't get to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, so yes, that, that part's pretty difficult. So in fact, even now, I mean, here at, uh, in Hawaii, you know, here we are in this beautiful setting in Punchbowl and uh, the knuckleheads over at Hickam, uh, the guard unit with their F-22s, you know, they'll take off and they'll, they'll do vertical climbs and, you know, not only can you hear them, but you can see them most of the time. And I'll just look over and kind of just turn away, <laughs> yeah. get a little jealous, obviously. So it, it doesn't, it never leaves you. When was the last time you were in a cockpit of a plane? Uh, of a real airplane? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of one that went into the air. Um, that was actually, uh, well, the last time I flew was in uh, 2007 uh, when I left uh, Alaska as the vice wing commander. I was flying F-16s up there still. So last, that was the last time I was in the front seat. Um, but for three years while I was stationed here uh, in the Pacific area, I was allowed to fly as well, but only back seat and right seat uh, observer. And uh, So 2010 was the last time I was actually in a, a real airplane. Wow. Yeah, so it's it's been a while. So you retired in 2011. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that transition. Twenty, almost twenty-eight years of military service. How do you? Yeah. What's the first step out of the military? So the first step is to realize you got bills to pay and you got to take care of that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but therein lies part of that that tug of do I take the first thing offered or do I do what I want to do? And we had had. I was fortunate. I went through all the transition briefing stuff. In fact, I did it twice. And if there's one thing I can recommend to people, I mean do that do that more than once you know do it before you need to do it and then do it when you when you have to um, because it gives you time to kind of think about what it is you're doing but the toughest part was realizing you can say no um, and then and then also realizing like people tell you but you don't want to believe them that as you leave especially if you've been doing this one thing for that long that chances are you're not going to get it right the first time and so when I left initially, my very first job uh, was sticking around as my own assistant. So I retired as a colonel and my deputy, civilian deputy, had left for another job about six months prior to that and there had been a hiring freeze. Bottom line was uh, our, our boss begged and pleaded with me and convinced me to stick around and become the deputy of the organization I just was giving up. So that was really kind of 
goofy and a little strange to walk out one day in a flight suit and to walk out walk in the next week with a suit on. It was kind of a little strange. But I knew I wasn't going to stay there long term. You know, I was I was literally I was still in that that you know, doing the right thing mode, to be in the Boy Scout and doing what somebody was asking me to do. Um, so I only stuck around there for nine months, uh, and I had an offer to go be the uh, Assistant Inspector General for the Training Command for all of the Air Force. Uh, not unlike what I had done for the last two years previous to that while I was here as the uh, Inspector General, the IG, for the whole Pacific Command out here, um, which was fun because it was challenging in that you had combat related stuff training command was not it was a much more benign environment much more uh, rigid environment uh, square peg round hole wasn't going to last <laughs> so so i was on you know i was on my second shot of okay uh, you know i'm still trying to please other people and uh, you know i need to do something for me and i had friends who offered uh, to you know for positions out in the defense industry and uh, interviewed and and things just didn't feel right. I, I, I knew I didn't really have any desire to go into the defense industry and essentially become a used car salesman or otherwise have to worry about productivity. You know, hey, have you, have you brought in more customers? Have you sold more stuff? I didn't want to live with that. And I really, to some extent, was ready to do something really different uh, than what I'd been doing. Um, when I got the call in fall of 13 from two different people here on the island uh, telling me that the previous director had just retired no notice, I don't think I had it in my mind that I was going to go from retired fighter pilot to cemetery director. That was, that was in, I haven't planned much in my lifetime, but that was no part of any plan. You know? yeah. and, and it was one of those where it took about 10 seconds to kind of go reel back and go, uh, why do you guys think of me for this? Um, but especially this location and the, the dynamics of this place make it very interesting. It is, uh, it is unlike any kind of environment that I've worked in, but totally different. Uh, so, so yeah, so I'm on job three post-retirement. Hopefully this one sticks. Sure. So, so um, a couple more things on your transition out. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of veterans, when they when they separate from the military, they become in need of a new sense of purpose, and they um, pursue that. Is that something that that you experience as well? Yes, I, very definitely. I mean, it's uh, there was a an empty feeling, I guess, if that's the best way to describe it. There was that kind of vacuum. You've gone from being essentially part of a big fraternity camaraderie you know you've been part of something much bigger than yourself for most of your adult life and all of a sudden you're kind of sitting on the sidelines and it's all about you but the problem is there's yeah you're going to work and you're getting a paycheck but the sense of satisfaction the sense of self-worth just isn't there i mean yeah. I, don't get me wrong you know we we had a brand new cushy custom-built house in San Antonio. I had a job that was more than paying the bills. We had a comfortable life, and it was not rewarding. And uh, and in all candor, you know, you miss that that sense of purpose. You miss working with the type of people and the caliber of people and the people who have a sense of helping others, serving others, doing something above and beyond themselves. 
And so the opportunity to come into the VA and be able to help veterans and work with veterans and their families again was just, you know, I don't even think I realized it even when I took the job, how important that was or how much of a dead space there was in my life in the three and a half years since I'd retired. And, but ever after having been here now for a couple of years, you go, ta-da, you know. Yeah. My wife used to keep, she was, you know, after I retired, she goes, man, you're crabby. <laughs> she probably still does. But, but honestly, I am emotionally and physically in a much, much better place in this job because I am able to directly affect or otherwise help veterans and their families at an incredible time in their life. And, and, and the crew here too is so much fun to work with. I mean, it's a challenge, it's different um, because it's a whole different dynamic of what's going on on a daily basis, daily operations. And you mix that in with all the international flavor of this place with the consulates uh, and all of the military and the people that come through here from a DV standpoint. So it's a, you know, our public affairs officer, Gene, and I laugh once in a while. It's like playing whack-a-mole every day. You never know what's going to pop up. But just the daily interaction with all the people who are all, you know what they're thinking. You know you can trust them. You know that they all have the same sense of purpose that you do. And you definitely do not find that out in the rest of the world. Yeah. You know, the rest of industry. So... Did you experience any any sort of emotional crisis after you left? <laughs> I don't think there was a crisis. I, but I think there was definitely. Um, was I was there depression? I don't know. Maybe on some level, yeah. um, you know, because it it wasn't just leaving the military. It was you're not going to fly anymore. You know, you're not going to be around these people that you've been around all this time. So, so yeah, it's you know, I I I put my energies into other stuff uh you know my my sons my both of my sons i drugged them with me and i had always been interested in, and had participated sometime uh with habitat for humanity you know so again looking for avenues to do something more than just worry about myself uh, or even just the family so we got very heavily involved with uh building houses down in san antonio um but but again, it was it was good, um, but it still just wasn't quite the same. So yeah, you know, I and and like I said, from a mental standpoint, I am definitely in a much better place than I was. You know, it, it looked like the idyllic uh, you know setup when we were in after I had retired. I mean, it it was cushy, and I actually did have a lot of folks look at me and go, "You're doing what? You know, you're 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 throwing all this away and just gonna." you know, sail off to Hawaii, and what the hell are you thinking? Um, and there were a lot of people that questioned it, um, but, you know, yeah. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. But I here really you would. are. Uh, here I am. Yeah, yeah. and this is um, one of the more uh, noteworthy cemeteries, I think, in uh, the national cemetery system, not only just in its location, but sort of its design, and, you know, yeah. there's a lot of veterans buried here that were, you know, killed in... Um, Pearl Harbor attacks and other battles of World War II. Right. How, um, in your few years here, how have you gotten to know who's buried here? <laughs> it's been a it's been a busy task. Um, part of that comes about with some of the uh, 
veteran service organizations. Uh, they know some of their, you know, whether they're the Purple Heart recipients uh, or whether they're Medal of Honor recipients. Um, you've got some notables here that by their very nature wind up getting a lot of attention from uh, the tours that come through, whether that's uh, Senator Inouye or uh, Allison Onizuka, the Challenger astronaut, or Ernie Pyle, the World War II uh, correspondent. So there's, there's those, but there are also, um, for instance, a, a really large part of What's been going on here in the last couple of years is uh, our efforts with the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency uh, was JPAC. Those are the folks who basically, none will be forgotten or left behind. So they go out all over the world and it ranges anywhere from World War I up through the current wars where they are out searching for missing. They follow any lead that they can and they'll take teams out into the jungles of Laos or Vietnam, wherever they have to. Here at Punchbowl, we have had uh, almost 3,000 unknowns, specifically from World War II and from Korea. Uh, Section U, which is up behind where our uh, administrative building was until we tore it down last year, there were a little bit more than 750 unknowns from the Korean War. And that effort had started before I got here in a measured amount where they know basically who those individuals are, but because of technology or lack of back in the 50s, they couldn't positively identify them, so the Army would classify them as unknown. Well, the technology has gotten better with DNA, and they've got samples from relatives, uh, some other things that have occurred, which has allowed them to be able to now start taking these unknowns, and after we uh, disinter them and do a dignified transfer over to them, 12 to 16 months later, they have an identification. And so you start getting to know those individuals as they're identified, you get the rest of the history of their life. And, uh, and that's been very rewarding to see that closure for the families. So, so while most of our World War II kill in action are still here and stay here, you know, we just last uh, in 2015, summer and into the fall, disinterred the, the entirety of 388 unknowns from the USS Oklahoma, uh, which was one of the ships that capsized in Pearl Harbor on the attack. And the DPA folks along with the Navy have already identified and notified uh, over 60 of the families that, you know, for 65 years or 75 years, sorry, have had no idea whatever happened to their loved one. And so that closure and to have, we've had two of them already be reinterred back here. There's two more scheduled. So, so getting to know those families, most of them second, third, and fourth generation, uh, and hearing the stories about those individuals is a lot more personal than just walking out into the cemetery and trying to figure out who's who. There's, there's faces, there's names, there's closure. And that's that piece that, that a lot of folks don't understand and we just had all the 75th anniversary uh, Pearl Harbor uh, commemoration here in Hawaii, as you know. And you hear that so often from these families that, you know, Uncle Joe or, um, you know, Grandpa Fred went to war and their parents or their siblings never had any closure. 
there was nothing there. You know, they got a letter from the Defense Department saying, we're sorry, they're missing, they're presumed dead. And that was it. And so, and so you wouldn't think after this many years that that would be important, but it really does matter to these families. So, yeah. so our guys, I mean, so we spent a lot of time. So again, this is, you know, I, not to be trite, but you know, I, I joke around once in a while of, you know, we're one of the few cemeteries with a decreasing population instead of an increasing population because of the amount of disinterments that we're doing. But there's a secondary effect to that, that once those unknowns are identified, the Army releases those grave sites back to us because they own the unknown grave sites. They're the, the oversight for it. We actually make those grave sites available. So now you take a cemetery that's been closed since 1990 for interments in ground, and you can make those grave sites available to local veterans and their families. And that, that you can't believe how important that is to our local veterans. It's even though we have a beautiful state veteran cemetery right on the other side of the Kolal Mountains right here, they still fight tooth and nail and are very emotionally attached and want to be here at Punchbowl for their final resting place. So, yeah. Earlier this week, Herb Weatherwax um, you know, passed away. Yeah. Very, very well known in this area as Uncle, Uncle Herb. And yeah. Uh, we've got a number of Pearl Harbor survivors. In fact, the day after, on the 8th of December, we had a, um, one of the survivors from the USS Oklahoma uh, who had passed away earlier this year. The family had made the decision because he wanted to be interred here uh, with his, the rest of his shipmates. So there's only a little bit of irony in the fact that we disinterred you know, the, most of his shipmates for them to be identified. Uh, and, but he's here and there are still many, many of the, whether they're the unknowns from the West Virginia, the Arizona, uh, California, other ships that were in Pearl Harbor. So, yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, it, was, it was tough. I almost, I almost, you know, Herb was 99, yeah. a great individual to talk to, was out at the Valor and the Pacific Museum every day. I mean, you look at him and you go, man, I don't look that good at 55. I can't believe he's 99. Yeah. Um, but but he drew energy off of, and it was only in the last few years that he started doing that. Until yeah. that time, he was very uh, very much just living his life. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll miss him. A few days before the 75th commemoration, I was here at the Punch Bowl for an event that you, that um, that your cemetery hosted with mm -hmm. grade school kids. You know, reciting things for the for a group of World War II veterans is a really cool experience. I think listening to them in unison sing "God Bless America" I think yeah. had to have been my favorite part. Um, but afterwards, uh, my colleague and I had an opportunity to follow one World War II vet around while he found a friend of his that's buried here right. um, that died in '44, and he this was his first time getting a chance to visit his friend. I mean, it was a sobering experience to, you know, to watch that, that he was so committed to, to being able to visit his friend for the first time and want to put flowers on his grave. I'm sure that's something you see more often than not. Yeah. Um, I mean, tell us about that experience, not only being able to help them locate their loved ones that they may have not have seen in half a century, um, and being able to deliver that for them. Yeah, it's... That's, that's part of that uh, boots on the ground, um, part of this job that's hard to replace. You know, we have the emotional, um, tough experience on a daily basis. We typically are doing about seven or eight interments a day, um, but 
being able to have those folks that show up. And most of the time, you know, we, we have some of the World War II survivors that are still among us that haven't passed yet. But even whether it's Vietnam or Korea vets, and a lot of them, there's a lot of, um, you know, depending, uh, the Vietnam guys, there's a lot of animosity. So you talk about an emotional outpouring uh, when they come up here and they're able to visit a gravesite of somebody that the last time they saw them was when they were being carried out of the, off a battlefield. And, and the majority of these guys from World War II up through the current war, they've never been here, you know, ever. So a lot of these guys, it's 50, 60 years removed, and you and I might think that that emotional you know, time would have been over and it would be kind of a fairly stoic event or you know, a, a level, but it very much brings back a lot of those things that a lot of them have, you know, like with Herb. You know, Herb rarely ever, his family would tell you, rarely ever talked about anything that happened um, in World War II, but yet, in his first six months or so over at Valor Pacific, there were some tough times for him because because it was the first time he had thought about it. So for us to be able to walk out, you know, my dad was in the Korean War, my uh, father-in-law was in the two tours in Vietnam, you know, I and I've been shot at more times than I care to remember. And so you have that attachment with these guys. And, and therein lies, I think, the rub. It's not just me. It's everybody here with the exception literally of two out of 28 of our employees are not veterans wow everybody else here has got that tie they have got that that bond with the folks who come out here so we will drop whatever we're doing to go take care of and and assist them and however we can do it and and to think that you're not going to get emotionally caught up in what they're experiencing you're an idiot, you know. Yeah. If you if you think you're going to go out there and just do your job, you're not. Um, but but that's what that's what gets us out of bed in the morning. That's what makes this as special as it is. Yeah, and by, by the time the audience hears this, the official announcement that the that NCA will have received the the 96 index score on customer service satisfaction. Yeah. Um, that outperforms private and public <laughs> organizations. It is probably completely unexpected considering that NCA is associated with the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, you know, what, you know, being realistic, you know, it's when I when I tell people, they they almost don't believe that it's a that the yeah. NCA is a part of VA because of this, right. how wonderful it is. Um, tell us, if, give me one or two examples from what you've seen from your staff here that you know is contributing to that wonderful customer service. Sure, those are easy. Um, I. We get a lot of folks through here from every country you can imagine. Um, and so aside from, let's just talk daily interments. Um, when the folks show up here, it is personal. And we have a cemetery representative with that family from the time that they show up until the time that that family leaves. And there is nothing that we do out in the cemetery that is more important than making sure that that family, that whatever expectations they may have are met. Uh, if there's any way, I, our vote to them, my vote to my folks is find a way to say yes. I mean, it, they've heard that from me more ways than, than they want to know. But our 
push to make it special for those families. For instance, um, if we have a casket interment of doing a burial, and, and we do have a lot of them because the spouse passes away, whether it was a veteran that went first or the wife when the, when the other one passes away. So we're, even though we're a closed cemetery, we do a lot of them. Once the casket's lowered into the gravesite, the crew, which is seven people uh, who are lowering the casket down, uh, step back, salute, uh, and then and then they turn to the family and and say thank you. And the families don't expect that, but it's something because again, those seven guys out there are all veterans. They know what this means. And it's out of respect for that veteran who served their country that they do that little extra, that they, they make sure that that family knows that they feel that bond, that they feel that loss just like that family does. So, and no visitor, if we know they're having troubles or need to find their way around, we don't hesitate to, to stop what we're doing. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've seen my guys in one of their you know, Toro Workman carts with, especially folks who visit cemetery uh, giving people rides um, and so you don't exactly get a young crowd out here typically uh, as you might expect and the areas of the the punch bowl over time there was a big effort to make as much of the space available for interments as possible but what that leads to is you've got some areas where there are grave sites that are you know up on some slopes this was a volcanic crater so it naturally kind of slopes on the sides and so if we and we have some regular visitors and we will stop uh, and if we if we see them coming and we'll let them get in a cart and we'll give them a ride into the section up to the gravesite of their loved one so that they can get there and they can see them and and those are the little things those are the things that that tell people that we actually care that we're not just paying lip service to some slogan or something that somebody wrote down somewhere this is this is about actually taking care of them. Um, and so those, those are the kind of things. And then you know, beyond that here, if you go beyond just the interments, we have typically two dozen large ceremonies and about another two dozen small ceremonies every year. And so the veterans groups that use this location and have that bond, that connection with those location, you know, we take care of most everything that they need to be able to have a very meaningful and very respectful ceremony. And those things work to pull the bonds closer to all of the community so that if we do have something where we have a need or we need some help with something, the veterans and their families and the organizations around the community are just immediately ready to jump in and help out. So those are a couple. Yeah, very well. Jim, is, is there anything else regarding your work here at VA or, um, you know, if, if, someone's, if someone's visiting a cemetery, yours mm -hmm. or somewhere else, um, and they're just not really quite sure how to handle, like, not handle themselves, but, you know, like, they, <laughs> you know, need some help getting around, like, how, you know, what's the, sure. you know, who can they approach? Well, the, the visitor center, the admin building, uh, the folks that are in there, any cemetery that you're going to go to are will readily drop what they're doing and take care of you, help you, whether it's finding a gravesite, whether it's uh, finding your way around the cemetery, whatever it is. The amount of time that we spend doing that 
uh, is much, much more rewarding. And, and I think the other part of that is internally to the VA that literally size-wise the whole of the National Cemetery Administration is not even as large as some of our bigger medical centers. So you made a comment about it earlier, but I mean, from a perspective check, 135 cemeteries plus the leadership in DC, and we are still smaller physically than one medical center, yet we are able to reach out and touch almost every veteran uh, that is out there. Um, so that part's very rewarding. So what would I tell you is that internally to VA, uh, if you have the opportunity to, to look over the fence and become an employee in NCA, uh, don't hesitate. Uh, it's an extremely rewarding job and being able to work every day, not only with those people who have that mission, but to be able to interface and to talk to uh, the veterans and their families every day is extremely rewarding. Absolutely. So, yeah. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Thanks. And thank you for your service. Thanks. I appreciate it very much. Of course. My grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA and proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA Careers to find out more. The VA recently announced that it now provides eligibility determinations for burial in a VA national cemetery prior to the time of need. Pre-need eligibility determinations will streamline access to burial benefits that veterans have earned through military service for themselves and their eligible family members. This will help veterans and their families with end-of-life planning and bring a peace of mind. And bring peace of mind. Interested individuals may submit VA Form 40 10007 application for pre-need determination of eligibility for burial in a VA national cemetery and supporting documentation such as a DD Form 214 if readily available to the VA National Cemetery Scheduling Office. But simply for more information regarding pre-need, visit sem.va.gov. cem.va.gov. Today's veteran of the day is Kata Kelleher. Kata served in the Marine Corps from 2007 to 2012 as a combat correspondent and did one tour in Afghanistan. Thank you for your service, Kata. To read Kata's full write-up and to learn how to nominate your own Veteran of the Day, go to blogs.va.gov. That wraps up this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I know there's a lot of options out there for entertainment, so I appreciate you spending your time here with me and learning about these amazing veterans. Be sure to check out more from our community on Twitter at D-E-P-T Vet Affairs. If you have any questions you'd like to have answered on the show, please tweet them to us using hashtag VA Podcast. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off. <laughs>